to the Joy for Ministry podcast. I am so glad you are here today. We have a special episode. I have the great privilege of interviewing Laura Barringer and Dr. Scott McKnight, authors of a new book, A Church Called Tove, that is released on October 6th. I hope that you enjoy this today. Here we go. Hi, everyone. I am so glad you are tuning in for today's episode. I have the great privilege to be speaking with Laura Barringer and Dr. Scott McKnight. So thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you. For well, thank you us. for having us. Good I'm to so be with excited. You. So Laura, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am, well, by day, I am a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> so I, I came on into this topic in a very roundabout way. My husband and I met over 20 years ago at Willow Creek Community Church. And we, we were at Willow Creek for over, for gosh, decades. And we left the church maybe four to five years ago. Um, and we, not because of anything that has been happening in the news recently with Willow Creek, um, we now actually attend my parents' church. It's a small little Anglican church. But the reason that I got involved with the story is because when the news broke in the Chicago Tribune about Bill Hybels and harassment of women on staff and former staff, um, when we read the article, it really, at first, we just kind of rolled our eyes and thought, oh, goodness, here we go again. There's no way this mm. is true. Um, well, when we started reading the article, my husband and I were reading it together. I was reading it out loud to him. We knew the names of the women. We, we knew the women. Mm. And we realized that there, it, it was, it was like a dichot. It was hard to put two and two together that either the women are lying or Bill Hybels and Willow Creek are lying. Right. Um, but it was really that connection to the women that really got the story unraveling for us. Right. Okay. And um, Scott, I feel like I know you. Uh, my husband has talked about you nonstop for the past three months from reading Romans backwards to Kingdom Roots that he listens to all the time. I know your voice. Um, but if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to these days. Well, <clears throat> today I've been teaching all day long at Northern Seminary, but um, I've been teaching for almost 40 years in uh, two seminaries and one undergraduate Christian university. And I've been writing most of those, those years as well and uh, preaching for more than Oh, not, not all the time, but for a lot of those years preaching when I had opportunities. So, uh, but very involved at, um, in teaching the New Testament for the value of the local church. Mm. And when I was working on my PhD, I had a strange experience with a very, very well-known New Testament female scholar, woman scholar named Morna Hooker who's a great scholar. And uh, I pulled up next to her on a bicycle in Cambridge, England at a stop site. And I, uh, I'll try to turn on my video here. I'm sorry. I, th this is really chill, so I can turn this on. <laughs> um, I pull up next to her and I, I looked at her and I thought, I have learned so much from you. Mm. And we have this theory among many evangelicals that women aren't supposed to teach. And it may be the truth that they're not to, not supposed to, but I can tell you, this woman can teach, she can mm -hmm. write. And I had learned so much. And it just, at, sort of at that moment, I just uh, rode away on my bicycle thinking, I just changed my view on this because of the encounter of the reality of learning from women. And uh, I began to study that indirectly and directly at different times in my career because of uh, learning so much from Morna Hooker. Mm, wow. So I became sensitive to the women's issue. I don't think I've been a paragon of sensitivity to women uh, and their, let's say, the systemic um, factors at work 
where women experience the reality in a completely different way than men. I mean, I've had to learn this like many, like many men. I didn't grow up in a world that was sensitive to women's concerns at all. I mean, in, in a church world or a theological world. Right. Uh, so uh, I've become sensitive to this and Laura uh, pushed hard, very hard for me to stay on this issue. And I was just saying, no, I've got plenty of things to write. Mm. I'm doing fine. And, and then a couple things happened. I said, okay, let's do it. So I'm so glad she pushed you because <laughs> I'm so excited about this book and this topic. Um, like I said, my husband listens to Kingdom Roots. I know your voice. And so about three weeks ago, he sent me a podcast uh, episode on the book. And he said, you have to listen to this. I don't think he has ever done that. And he loves podcasts, listens to podcasts. So I said, okay, if he's sending me this, it must be really good, really important. And so I listened to it and I think my mouth just was like dropped open the entire time. And I was like, this is amazing. And I sent it out to a few of our friends who then sent it out to their friends. And recently we were having dinner with another couple, a pastor and his wife. And this was our, one of our main topics of conversation was this podcast and oh, wow. what wow. you had talked about and excitement for the book. So that was part of the reason I just wanted to like grab a hold of you and especially you, Laura, I just have, you know, my ministry is for women and just talk to you about it. So just briefly, can you tell us how this book came about and why did you push so hard to write this book? So when, so I, I talked about when the Tribune story broke and how we, my husband and I really struggled with, there was a moment when I realized only one of these sides is telling the truth. And either way, it's really disturbing. Mm. If the women are not telling the truth, these are people that we've known, some of them for 20 years or more, their family, friends, their household names that we've known for a long time. That would be disturbing if all of these people are collectively lying or it would be really disturbing too if Willow Creek were lying. And um, it was really a struggle like for, a, for a weeks of who's telling the truth. Only one of them could be telling the truth. Right. So we really struggled with it and we would call my dad. It became a family. We have text messages and phone calls. We, we just started talking a lot about the Willow story. Hmm. And when Willow would, I'll give one example. Um, one common comment that would come out of the Willow elders, and we heard it from their leadership on stage, was that the women weren't following Matthew 18, that they didn't agree with how it was coming out in the media. And so that makes a lot of sense, right? When you hear that and the, the congregation believes it, as you, you, know, you would if you're sitting right. there like to your leaders talk. So, it, but it didn't really feel, it didn't settle well within us. Hmm. So we would call my dad and ask him about what Willow said about Matthew 18. And then he would be, he would explain they're not interpreting it correctly. And here's why. And I just felt, and I still feel like Mark and I are benefiting so much from my dad's wisdom about this. Everybody needs to hear this, not just us. And so I kept pushing him to just explain it, Matthew 18, explain how these people are more acting like prophets rather than um, it's really not a Matthew 18 issue at all. And it really bothered us that people were following the leaders and believing what they were saying and getting on board with the message mm. and all the while discrediting the character of the women. So that's really how it started as I started pestering my dad, pestering's a good word again, um, started pestering him to blog about it. And um, he finally gave in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, I did because, uh, well, I mean, with, within about a month, because we had had uh, so many conversations, uh, Laura and I and Mark and, and Chris, my wife, We'd had so many conversations about this that I had I had a bunch of ideas that I kind of wanted to sort out. So I was speaking somewhere. I think I was in the airport in Cincinnati, but I don't know. I could have been anywhere. Could have been in Texas. 
And I sat down uh, at, in the lounge and put down all my ideas. And I think it was probably two or three pages, something like that, uh, of stuff that, that we had talked about that I wanted to put in order. And I sent it to Lord Mark and they read it and they really liked it and said, I should, I should put this on the blog. And I thought, I don't know if I want to get involved. I don't know if I know enough of this story. So, and, and what happened is that we were, um, I took a group of students along with Chris to uh, Turkey and Greece and Italy, or no, just Turkey and Greece. And when we got back, I, I, I think within a day or two, I called Laura and just said, what's going on in the Willow story? And she said nothing. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I'm going to do something then. Wow. Because I realized, and uh, this, this, is, this is a big issue, is they have enough power, they had enough power to stall and drain the energy out of the women's voices. Because none of these women had any big platform other than their Facebook page. Um, so I thought they're, they're just stalling for the purpose of hoping that these women will go away. So I started taking that original manuscript and I realized it was in pretty good shape. And I edited it and added some stuff and clarified and then posted it on my blog. And oh my goodness, it, uh, it hit the fan to, to, to put it in a very right. soft Christian way. You right. know? And they, uh, I know uh, Laura heard this from a leader at Willow and I heard this from two or three leaders that that blog post was the talk of the town at Willow Creek for about a week. Wow. Well, that's the best thing you can have is that everybody yeah. has to read it and deal with it. And one of our conclusions was we side with the women. We think the women right. are telling the truth. Wow. And it was, it had an impact, but it was all, I mean, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done this, but there's one other part of the story that happened that uh, generated the book. Laura was every now and then suggesting on a book. In fact, a publisher actually, uh, asked me to have lunch and asked me to write a book about Willow. And I said, I'm not a church historian I, and they're not going to give me access to their records. And you know, it's, that's not the kind of thing I write. I wasn't so, thinking at that time that I would even be involved. I just wanted him to write it. Yeah. So I, um, um, I was thinking about different things, but I started reading, I'm, I'm interested in German theology and I'm interested in Bonhoeffer and world war two. And I decided to read a book by someone I, I, I knew was a really good scholar and a, a topic of interest to me. It was called Pastors Under Hitler. And it was a book about what, how the pastors in Germany responded to the Holocaust and how they justified themselves and blamed America and refused to admit that they had done anything wrong. I mean, it was just one thing. And I started taking notes and we were with, Chris and I were with Laura and Mark at Christmas um, on a beach. And I said to Laura, I, I, think, I think I've got an idea for a book. Mm. And I was, I had, I, we have a section in this book on false narratives. Mm. And that is one of the things that was so central to, to me is to realize this is something churches do intentionally. This is not something they accidentally learn how to gaslight people. So we, uh, I came up with like six of these things and then eventually it became eight. And then Laura had 22 stories for each, for each one of the points, which is, you know, we didn't, the, the publisher isn't going to take 22 stories for each thing. But um, that, that I think was the catalyst for it becoming a book. And then I started to work on it and uh, proposed it to Tyndale and they immediately took it. I so. think you talking about even putting the blog up and it being something that was the talk at Willow. Also, I think you're giving language to something that's happening all over. And so yeah. I'm sure it resonated hugely outside of that all over. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important, you know, as I listened to the second podcast about um, this book and honestly, I was, I was struggling within myself. I felt a little sick, but so elated 
that there was language to see these things that people go through that sometimes you feel alone. You don't know yeah, that it's yeah. out there. And I think, you know, that, that blog, I'm sure, you know, was huge because it's, people are going, yes, yes, that's it. You know, and, and I love that giving language to things and making people feel like they're not alone. Well, Laura is the one she pointed to me several times. This is the way people feel, you know, when you said that this is how that, you know, I'm not, I'm not in touch with a lot of those, hardly any of those people. Uh, but Laura was, and she said, Oh, wow, this is, this is what they're, we're talking about. So yeah. I think you're right. Joy. Yeah. So you talk about things that like sound good, like Matthew 18 and things like loyalty and maybe like no gossiping and all these things are kind of talked about to that maybe are things that sound good sound biblical but are contribute contributing to a culture of you know protection and silence and did you see that when you were you know looking to the, into you know researching this book that there were things that sounded good that sounded biblical but were being twisted oh, are you okay um, it was so obvious, mm -hmm. um, so many of these things, and you would hear someone say, you know, we shouldn't be going public. So what should we do? You, you think these women should go talk to Bill Hybels or to James McDonald by themselves in a room alone? You really think that is what is being taught here? No, it's not being taught here. This is abuse of a person and they don't have to go meet with it. So they would use a text and I think, no, this text is with the text that we should apply. Deuteronomy talks about uh, these sorts of things and, and they hadn't looked at that. And then the other one in, uh, that really irritated me is that no one should bring an accusation against an elder apart from two or three witnesses. Well, you know what this means? This means that no elder, pastor, leader can ever be accused by a woman if there wasn't a witness. Mm. Well, this is just absolute, this is ludicrous. How many men abuse women in front of other people? It's zero, it's almost zero. Right. So th this just was, and I thought, no, they're just, uh, they're just using these texts to silence women. And, uh, so we saw him and Laura was really paying attention. You can tell them about this, but she paid attention to the original, I think they called them family meetings or something. The Willoughby, yeah, the family meetings. The family meetings where they would come out and sort of give their version of it. And Laura studied these enough to find out they were totally manipulating stories. Yeah, once I started researching it a bit, We've, we read a lot of Baz Chavidian's work and Wade Mullen. And once I, once the awareness settled in, I could see it with such clarity. And again, you have to, there's still a struggle with disbelief that a, ch at a church, people that we're trusting, that we're supposed to be able to trust, would manipulate and lie and just shred lives that right. part of it that part of it is a real struggle right um but yeah to answer your question over time and just with raising my own awareness of the topic we could just see it clearly for what it was especially right. knowing the women and knowing that they're people of character right yeah that's interesting i think so much even being in a church you hear things like be loyal to the organization or don't gossip and so you you feel a little isolated like i'm doing something wrong when i'm you know and it's to me it seems like it's sometimes it can you feel like you're the wrong person if you're coming forward or have a concern or um mary demuth has a great quote about that she said um that it's not gossip to out to talk publicly about a predator, that it's actually justice and the narrative should be flipped. And mm -hmm. I love I love that quote because mm -hmm. I think it's really helpful to people that you're not gossiping, you're right. exposing truth. I mean, right. you know, like the other one is that don't go public with this information. Well, 
the Ortbergs, the Miatos. Okay, who's the other one? Betty Schmidt. <laughs> Betty Schmidt. These others, these others had been going to Willow's Elders for four years. Wow. So it was never, it was never an immediately, uh, an immediate going public. And they, they only went public because the Willow elders refused to deal with this issue honestly and fairly. It wasn't, they, they had no desire to go public. They turned this down several times when the reporters came to them, different, different ones. So they, they knew what was going on and um, they, they knew that they could stall them out. So, oh, right. it's, uh, the churches will, you know, you've experienced this. Churches will do a lot of things to protect their own reputation and to protect the power of a pastor or the reputation or glory or honor of a pastor, of a famous person, of a leader. They'll do a lot to protect that. Right. And that's where it gets difficult. So you're writing this book, you're doing some research for it. You've had your own experience, um, Laura, being in a church where the, the culture is toxic and you're seeing these things come out. In your research for this book, did you find a common thread of some things that can lead to a toxic culture? Well, I would say, first of all, when I was attending Willow Creek, I don't believe that I saw the toxicity. I don't believe that I saw it until I left. Um, I, I recognized that I felt, let's be honest, I was like, ooh, I know family members that are really close to Bill Hybels and you feel like the sense of importance. And I remember thinking, I probably shouldn't, that's really silly. Like I shouldn't be feeling that way. It's probably not, I, but that was kind of, then I just kind of dismissed it. Um, that was a red flag that, that I can see now that we shouldn't be feeling important because we get close to this celebrity pastor. And that was maybe the extent of it. Um, and I just didn't, once I left Willow Creek and then started attending a church that is the opposite of a celebrity culture, then I was able to see the unhealthy toxic parts of Willow Creek, but mm -hmm. I really don't think that I saw it when I was there. You know, I would say that the uh, common thread is a narcissistic male who exercises power and authority through fear. Those are, uh, that, those are common threads. I mean, every one of the stories I think that we actually studied uh, that were negative, whether you look at Harvest Bible Chapel, whether, I don't know where you live, enjoying uh, uh i'm in new jersey new jersey <laughs> i thought there was an accent there um <laughs> the um i i don't think we found one where even if it was masked as humility i'm an ordinary guy the way they were treated and the way they treated other people when you when the curtain was removed you saw that almost every, I mean, every one of these churches had power hungry, narcissistic males who got rid of anybody who questioned their, their glory. And surrounded themselves with leadership teams that allowed it to continue. Yeah. Yeah. I remember time. feeling, I remember feeling so frustrated with the Willow elders and Remember, Dad, we said, he put them there so that they would do what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, if anybody would um, go up against him, they would get removed. Or uh, there's one elder who told us that she did not vote the way that the rest of the elder board voted, the way that Bill Hybels wanted her to vote. And he did not look at her or speak to her. She calls it icing out for six months. Wow. Wow. But, but this, the, these are Christian people who should be treated as people with graciousness and kindness and love. And 
this is this is nothing other than power games. This is not Christianity at all. So I love what you say in uh, there's a little description of your book and this is exactly to me what it comes down to. It says you explore the concept of Tov, unpacking its richness and how it can help Christians and churches rise up to fulfill their true calling as imitators of Jesus. And so just what you talked about, like their power hungry or this or that, like this is what it comes down to is what the church needs to be their true calling. And that's why like talking about this book, I get so pumped up. Um, and I want to go into a little bit of what Tove looks like and why you chose that word. Um, and I have a really great question that I'm going to ask you after we do that. I'm so excited for this question. I can't wait to see your answer, but (laughs) (laughs) before we do that, um, can you just unpack a little bit of why you chose Tove? Um, and what a little bit of that looks like that culture? Well, I guess this one's for me. Um, This was rather peculiar. When I wrote the first blog, I think it was the first blog, it may have been the second blog post. Um, I said, what these churches need is more goodness. And um, I wasn't thinking of anything too heavy uh, and too serious, or even, you know, I could have chosen another word, but I, I've been thinking about this word for a while, and they just there wasn't enough goodness. And the number of people who wrote to me, who talked to me, uh, said something, made comments about that word, I thought, well, there's something there. So what I did is I, uh, I got out my Bible and my concordances, and I looked through this word uh, goodness. And in the Hebrew Bible, it's tov, T-O-V. And it occurs a lot. And it's far more common in the Old Testament uh, or in the Bible than most people realize. So much so, I think you could call the Bible a a, a book of Tov. Mm. It's the book about Tov. It's about goodness. God is good and God does good and God creates what's good and he designs what's good and he wants people to follow him so that they'll be good it's just over and over. The fruit of the spirit is goodness. So good, good, good all the time. And it's even in the gospel, the good news. It's that that would have been in Hebrew. The Hebrew word tov would have shown up in that. So we we I started doing work with this, and I really at this point I knew that this was a counterpoint to the toxicity and the false narratives. But I had a lot of work to do on this part. And this, this is what I would say to Laura. I wasn't bargaining for all this work on this one. <laughs> so I started working on it, and I really enjoyed it. I really did. And so what we did is we talked back and forth on what I think the way to describe it would be, in, in a toxic culture like this, what are the marks of Tove that would form a culture that wouldn't allow that toxicity. And that's where we came up with our seven characteristics of Tove and seven characteristics of of, uh, toxicity, I guess. So I have a very important question for you. I'm really curious to see what what your response is. (laughs) But it's funny because I talked to my friend about this question and she's like, oh, that's a good question. Um, And then I told my husband, he's like, that's a good question. So you talk about in the first podcast on this, that um, culture acts as an agent and you pick it up. So you either pick it up or you walk away. So my question to you is, um, what would you say to somebody who is working in a toxic church, sees it? but sort of feels trapped, you know, you're, it's hard with ministry. It's hard with being a pastor because you, you feel it's a calling. Um, but you're also providing for your family. So maybe they're there. They feel trapped. Can they take on a culture of Tove when the organization they're in doesn't? That's a good question. It's a big question. I don't know if you have an answer for it. it. This is really interesting. I was teaching a course, um, 
of doctoral students about a month ago. And one of the students in the room had done a PhD on organizational transformation. <laughs> I thought, well, this is my guy. And, he's, <laughs> and he, says, he says to me, it takes seven years to, change, to transform the culture of an organization. And I said, you know, how did we do in our basic ideas? He said, you're pretty good, but you don't, you don't know the right terms. <laughs> so all the terms that are involved in organizational research, of course, I don't, I don't study that sort of thing. So, but he, he said this, and this is exactly what we believe, and that is, yes, you can be an agent of Toad in the small pocket that you are in. Mm. And you can surround yourself by other people who have the character of Toad. And over time, pockets can grow in a church of Toad. Mm. But it's not going to happen because you preach a series of sermons on it or because you read our book, although we'd like you to read our book. Um, it is, it is a, about time of people marked by the character of Tove living with one another and creating pockets of Tove enough that they can start, let's say, blending together and becoming a mass wow. of Tove in the church. But he said to me, he said, it takes seven years, and that's if the group is intentional about changing. Wow. Well, the sad thing is there's a lot of churches who are toxic, are churches that are toxic, that uh, think they're tove and have no desire to change. And those, those toxic church cultures are never going to change. Yeah. Until those people die off and someone else replaces them. It's sad. I was yeah. thinking of the story at Willow Creek of Steve Carter. Are you familiar with his story? Uh, he was one of the Willow Creek teaching pastors. And long story short, he, he was a very Tove and is a Tove character. And he went up against the leadership and ended up resigning his position because he did not agree with the way the women were being treated. And he said so publicly. And that was, they wanted, you know, they kind of wanted him to be silent and take a real slow process at it, which means we'll wear you down and uh, you'll lose the edge. And he, he said no. Wow. And, then, and then when one of the, the big stories came out in the New York Times, he, uh, he walked away. Wow. I mean, it was, it was a courageous act of Tove. It really was. Laura and I both, admi uh, we admire Steve Carter for his character and for his choice. But this is, a, this is a really serious issue, Joy, and it is not gonna change because we want it to change. It's gonna change because we want it and we practice it over a sufficient amount of time to create pockets of Tove that can transform the culture. And, and there'll be opposition. So I you credit, credit a person for being able to recognize that it's toxic. Like yeah. I'm thinking of Steve Carter, that he had to wade through a lot of, um, I think I asked him one time, how did you wade through all of the lies and the, um, the manipulation to actually see the truth? And that's not easy to do. So I would credit anybody who sees that it's actually toxic and then stands up to it. Yep, yep. Totally. That's hard to do. That that can be um, a hard thing to do. And I, I love what you say about these pockets because actually one of my questions um, was, Laura, you had talked about in the first podcast um, on this, in, in the Kingdom Roots podcast about, you know, the elders get up and they talk about their instituting policies and you knew like something wasn't right, that this is about, um, goodness and character, like your character. Um, so can you then institute this kind of change? Is this a heart change? Is this a leadership change? And, but I think what you're saying about those pockets, that kind of makes more sense to me and how that changes. 
because talking about the character, that's that's hard to change a person's yeah. character. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I would, you know, we would call and ask my dad is, and he would like, it's not about a policy. It's not about creating some kind of structure where men and women, you know, always have a third person there. It's really about the character of the person. Right. Yeah, a character of persons. Persons. And, and, uh, and Joy, you can't, uh, you can't get rid of, let's say, the offending pastor, the big problem, and think that it's going to change because that pastor was surrounded by retainers of his toxic culture. And those people are also involved. And, and it filters deep sometimes. It can go out three or four or five levels before you, you get to where you, I mean, maybe you've experienced this, is that it's, it's really disheartening when people are, let's say a leader is removed and you discover that there are five other people who you thought were your good friends, who all of a sudden are afraid to talk to you. Yeah. And you think, what kind of Christianity is that? That's not, anything we should recognize as Christian is that they're, they're, they're retainers for the pastor and the loyalty factor, the hero factor, all those things are involved. Right. Yes. It's, and it, you know, we, I told you guys this earlier, we went through um, a change last year and, you know, I remember like saying to my husband, I can never go into ministry again, but, but it, burns within me. It's like, well, what's what I want to do with my life. And it was like a week later, I'm like, I'm starting, I'm, I'm launching this ministry. And so you go through these things that you don't even know that people are walking through and there's, it's isolating. There's not people yeah, to come around yeah. them. And yeah. I, that's why I love this book so much because I know people and I've been through it where you do, you think you're alone and and hearing your podcast and putting a language to this, you're going, yes, that's it. Right. And it gives you this, you know, not just validation, but hope. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So, um, there's a lot, we, there's a lot of, we wrote it with hope and the goal is like, one of my dreams is that every elder would have a copy because it's not just it's not just about pastors. It's about the leadership team around the pastor too. Yeah. And, yes. Um, and I wanted to ask you that, like, who is this book for? Is it for you? So you're saying it's for the elders, the pastors, the leaders. Is it, so if you talked about these pockets, if the, if the pastor is not reading this or if this isn't for him, but people within the organization can grab a hold of this concept, even if it's not coming down from the top. Well, Laura is the one who recommended, I think, the dedication. So that's where we, we would start. It's for those who were wounded in mm. the process of resisting their culture. That's yeah. who it's for. Can you say that one more time? It's for those who were wounded in the process of resisting. That's so good. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> that's tove that's tove yeah i mean but, but we want uh we want uh the wounded resistors to read it we want them to make it a, a known to people who could be wounded uh there are many silent uh people who have been wounded and are suffering in silence uh there are um elders who need and leadership teams who need to be aware of this so we think we would love for all every church's elders all to read it but uh, we know that the book is aimed at at people who need a language to describe the experiences that they're having in their churches yeah i mean they you know they they tried to call the pastor's attention to something and the next thing you know they've been humiliated and they want, they want language. They want to learn what gaslighting means. Right. So I, it's very healing. It's healing when somebody puts words to something and you, you have that moment where you say, oh, it's not just me or this wasn't me. It's very healing. Um, but did you ever have that moment when you were afraid to speak up or write this book or go through this 
process or talk out. Laura, you had mentioned that you had lost friendship or relationships over this. Was there ever that moment where you were like, oh, I don't know if I want to speak up about this? Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm an Enneagram eight, but... Um, and my, well, my dad is the one that really put his reputation on the line, um, because you're the theologian and you have the, the reputation. Um, so I just, I see myself as a very small part in it. And, um, really I don't see myself as a victim. It's, it's about those who were actually abused in their resistance, but it is surprising to me how you were talking about somebody said earlier on this podcast that you people were afraid to talk to you that happened to me i went to willow creek and i have i saw people there who i have known i kid you not for 20 years we've been in each other's homes they would not look at me they would not talk to me they i thought i've never felt so unwelcome in a church as I did at Willow Creek wow. after I started speaking about just calling them to tell the truth. And I just, I got a very small glimpse of what it was like to be um, a victim of, I don't know what you would call that, but people were afraid to talk to me or be seen with me, I think. I'm assuming that that's what it was about. And shunning you, yeah. Shunning us for... Yeah. I, I I was astounded. I still am when I think about about what happened. Um, wow. But yeah, I lost friends for for what I said or for the side. They saw it as a side that that I took, and I tried to explain to me it's not about sides. There shouldn't be sides. There's just right. the truth. Right. So I don't I know. Think, you, you know, at the beginning, I didn't want to get involved because uh, I had other things to do. I believe the women. I was pretty sure of that, but it takes um, a measure of courage to go forward with something like this with the kind of platform I have on my blog or my books, you know, magazine articles, et cetera, uh, it, because you're going to get blowback. People are not going to like it. And do I want to spend my time fighting off people about this or not? Well, I finally decided, okay, if, uh, if Willow's not going to do the right thing, then I'm going to, I'm going to go more public. I'm going to, I'm going to say something. Mm. And uh, I don't think from that point on, I was afraid. Uh, I did. I wanted to know a little bit more of the law of what, you know, what, what can we say and what can we not say? I mean, it can be true. uh, And you could still, somebody could come after you for it. But um, I don't think we were ever afraid. I was ever afraid at that level. To me, the abused women, the wounded resistors were so important to this story that someone had to write on their behalf. Now, you know, we're not alone. Rachel Den Hollander came out before mm-hmm. and stuff at Michigan State and, and the Olympic gymnastics. And Wade Mullen has come out, and other people have come out. Mary DeMuth. So we we're not alone, but uh, we we felt that the women uh, needed to be defended, and we felt also that we had things to say that other people weren't saying. So we went forward, and we had really a really good editor at Tyndale House who who uh, really helped us with the manuscript. So that's I love that. Um, so do you have some encouragement for somebody out there who maybe is, is stuck in the situation, feels alone, or is in a manipulative or a toxic environment? Um, what is something that you could say maybe that from this book, a, a bit of encouragement or hope for them? Dad. <laughs> um, I think I would say uh that number one is that uh, God has his eyes on you is the uh, the concern and I had a long section on this and the editor cut it way back he thought it, I was going on doing too much Bible stuff <laughs> um 
at the end of, uh, just before the missionary discourse in Matthew, at the end of Matthew 9, Jesus sees the crowds who are uh, harassed and abused is almost the language being used. And he has compassion upon those crowds. This is, this is a message that needs to get to everybody, is that, is that God sees what's happening. He's grieved and compassion is coming from him. The other thing is, is that uh, there's an increasing number of people who have gone public about this story so that people can find friends and a support group. Uh, the third thing is maybe this should be second, is, th is that people who are struggling with these kinds of situations uh, probably should see a counselor. Mm. Counselors will help them find words to what they're experiencing. Um, and I think that that, that can be very, and, and our, you know, my wife, Laura's mother is a psychologist. There, there were countless times in our conversations that she just made a comment that became the way we talk about it. Mm. So she perceived psychologically what's happening with certain parts of these situations, like narcissists don't change. Don't, don't think that you're gonna be able to tell that pastor that what he's doing is wrong and he's gonna change about it. it. It's almost certain that a narcissist is not gonna adjust their behavior. That's not the way they operate. Right. So knowing that makes a difference. Mm. So I, I would just, I would say uh, that there's, there's a lot of people out there to help them. There's therapists to help them, but the compassion of God is in their corner. Mm. That's so good. Thank you. I, like I said, I listened to the second podcast. It was, you know, you talked about the false narratives um, and it was, it was a little hard to hear, but it was very freeing. Um, and I, I loved listening to it. Um, I'm excited to read the book and hear about you. So you said there's seven things that you have for Tove. Is that yeah. correct? Or seven? Here, Nurture empathy, nurture grace, put people first, tell the truth, nurture justice, nurture service, nurture Christ likeness. Thank you. I yeah. think we just got, we just got a treasure right there before and, October and, 6th. And every time, uh, every one of those has something we have to resist. Resist a narcissist culture, resist a fear culture, resist institution creep is one of the ways we talk about it. Resist false narratives, resist a loyalty culture, resist a celebrity culture. And one for me is resist a leader culture. Um, I'm nervous about pastors being called leaders. I'm a New Testament guy. I wanna, I wanna hear them called pastors. Leaders tend to be on themselves and expect everybody to follow them. And any pastor who doesn't see himself or herself first as a follower of Christ has failed at the very root of what we're called to do. Wow. So those that's, are the sevens. That's, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. The loyalty one just, it, it just gets me a little because you, it's supposed to be such a good word. And I've heard so many times you know, make sure the people in your congregation are loyal to the organization and not loyal to you. And you, you know, yeah. are like, okay. And you, you know, you, they shouldn't be loyal to you. They need to be loyal because, you know, you have different parts of a church or different campuses or different things. And um, so these things that sound good really can be so harmful. Yeah. So thank you so much. Do you have any closing thoughts? It was so great to talk to you guys. Thank you. Joy, have you ever heard of the book, A Man Called Ove? No. Oh, okay. Well, then I, <laughs> my story won't make any sense. <laughs> okay. It's a, it's a New York Times bestseller, A Man Called Ove. It's a novel. And the publisher said to my dad, well, we think a church called Tove sounds too much like a man called Ove. And my dad, <sighs> my dad said, well, Nobody's ever read that book. Uh, <laughs> well, it is a New York Times bestseller. But. Oh, that is so funny. And you can't change the name of your book. It's too good. You have to go. <laughs> so it's, 
Oh, wow. They were a little nervous about Tove and, but. They were, I mean, any kind of strange title like that. But I told them, I kept saying to them, now look, if you start using this as a, I said, every time I teach about this, everybody in the room starts using the word Tove. Mm -hmm. So it works. So just leave it alone. It'll be fine. <laughs> oh, trust me. My husband and I have you said this word to each other back and forth for the past three weeks. And we just kind of smile every time we say it. <laughs> Um, oh, good. Good and I you. told him, and I told him, I said, I guess, guess who's going to be on my podcast? And I just looked at him, I said, Tove. And he, you know, <laughs> so it, it has become our word. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. <laughs> so I'm so excited. And I hope, you know, maybe in the future we can chat again. Um, and Laura, I would love to connect with you again. Just again, my heart is for women in ministry. Um, so I hope that we can talk again. Yes. And the book comes out October 6th. Yeah, it does. So we'll have some information in just the show notes, and so that's that's it. Any anything you want to say in closing? Well, I just want to thank you for inviting us and for inviting Laura. She's, uh, you know, she's not the theologian in the family, and she's not used to doing these things. So, so this is a good opportunity for her to be able to talk about the things she's she's passionate about. So, mm. thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I spend my day with, um, I, I teach kindergarten this year, so it's kind of a, a, a jarring um, change <laughs> at night to talk about church abuse. Um, but yes. no, I really enjoy talking about it. It is a passion of mine. Thank you so much for listening today. And I want to thank Laura and Scott for being here and sharing their heart. I'm so excited for this book to come out on October 6th. We will have information in the show notes and the Amazon link so you can purchase the book. Make sure you share this with your friends. This is such a great message that other people need to hear. We'll be back next week for another episode. Until then, have a great week.